Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there. I'm your host, Simon Wamsey, one of my writers. In this case, Emma writes me scripts. Uh, Joaquin Kroll, the Doisberg cannibal. Cannibal unicorn. You know, for the longest time, until I was about 30, I thought the name Joaquin, like J-O-A-C-H-I-M, was pronounced Joachim. Because <laughs> I'd never known anyone called Joaquin before. And obviously, if you look at it, you're like, yeah, yeah, Joachim Kroll. When I was very, and that was honestly embarrassingly until I was probably about 30. When I was like 10, I thought the name Chloe, you know, C-H-L-O-E was pronounced Chol. So I'd be like, who's Chol? Oh, and why wouldn't Chloe be spelled C-L-O-W-I-E? Come on. Uh, Anyway, if you're new here, what happens is Emma has written me a script. I've never read it before. We're going to explore it together. Let us get into it. I've always wanted to be a writer, and the first story that inspired me to write my own book was the movie adaptation of C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The second book that inspired me to write my own book one day was called Strange Deaths. Okay, <laughs> these seem like very different books. Its author, John Dunning, was a retired journalist and two true crime author who based Strange Deaths on some of the weird, fantastical, and horrific stories that he'd covered during his career. It included the story of a woman from New Zealand who'd poisoned herself with arsenic to frame her cheating husband for murder. It also included the story of a quiet, middle-aged man who was beloved by children and his neighbors until they found out that he was a cannibalistic serial killer. It was the second case that stuck with me since it was the only one that I could find verifiable information on and I spent a few days researching it. It's like, oh, wait, it's fascinating. The guy ate his children. Let's get on Google and read some more about that, Emma. <laughs> Oh God, why? This was back in 2011. I had since decided not to become a true crime author, but it wasn't time wasted because here I am, ready to tell you the horrific story of the Doisberg cannibal, also known as Joachim Kroll. Wait, you are Kim? I looked this up before we did the 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 the, 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 the episode. Why do you give me Emma's given a, me a pronunciation guide of you are Kim, you are Kim, Joachim, you are Kim? I guess because. Uh, this is, uh, where is this set? Oh, he's German. Okay, he's German. So I guess it's Joachim in German. Okay, look, I'm going to try. I'm going to try my best, okay? The Wimp. Joachim, George Kroll, was born on the 17th of April 1933 in Hindenburg, a German-Polish industrial town that at the time was under German control. Kroll was the sixth of nine children, the last everybody, and he had five brothers and three sisters. His father worked in a nearby mine and his mother ran the household. Like most German families in the interwar period between World War I and World War II, they were extremely poor and lived in a three-room house. According to Kroll, his mother and his youngest brother slept in the kitchen, he shared a bedroom with his father and brothers, and all his sisters shared the other bedroom. His father and just enough money for them to afford the basics, and out of necessity, all of the children wore hand-me-downs and played with the same worn-out toys. So they were fed and healthy and didn't suffer unnecessarily at the hand of their strict Catholic parents. Is hand-me-down so unusual? <laughs> like, I'm like, anything that the kid, first kid has, the second kid can get. Like, <laughs> and I don't live in a three-room house. I just think, it's like, why would I throw away all of the old stuff and give, this, give, the, give the second kid new stuff that seems a bit wasteful it's not like they're gonna remember they're not gonna be like bitter about the used toys and slightly girly clothes that he has to wear <laughs> except for maybe little Joachim. 
God, this is going to be so hard. It's not that his parents were unusually cruel and abusive. His father was generally well-respected and believed that corporal punishment was an effective means of education. But he had no patience for his dim-witted son and considered him to be a good-for-nothing failure of a boy. It also didn't help that Kroll constantly wet the bed, something that he'd struggle with well into adulthood. Kroll also became his sibling's scapegoat, and he explained that whenever they got into trouble, they'd wait until their father came home in the evenings, and then they'd move all the blame onto him. Mr. Kroll had no problem pulling out his belt and punishing his young son without listening to his pleas of innocence first, believing that punishment is a must. Kroll had below-average intelligence and didn't do well at school. His classmates made fun of his protruding ears by comparing them to ship sails and often told him that he was stupid. Their constant bullying resulted in the young Kroll becoming a loner who avoided drawing attention to himself. It also meant that he became a pro at blending into the shadows and going through life unseen. Oh, so we've got, you know, we've got a few of the markers for him not having a brilliant future, but more of a murderous future. The abuse, the... the well, it's just the abuse and the bullying. But plenty of people are abused. Like, he's just getting a bit of a belt. It's not like he's there's some sort of horrific abuse going on. It's just a bit of corporal punishment. Obviously, I don't corporally punishment, punish my kids. I don't think it's something that has a place in the modern world. But obviously, this was a long time ago and things were different. And I don't know. Like, this isn't... It's not the worst story we've heard of someone who grows up to be a cannibalistic child eater. When he was 10, Kroll was recruited into the Hitler Youth, a Nazi version of the Boy Scouts whose aim was to train future Nazi soldiers. Attendance was compulsory, but Kroll had no interest in being a Nazi. He didn't want to be there and didn't voice any opinions. He simply did what he was told, and the leaders of his group took a dislike to him, calling him a coward, a weakling, a wimp, the opposite of what the glorious Hitler Youth was supposed to be. The only person who showed him any kind of love or paid any attention to him was his mother. He described her as being decent, pious, and hard working. That's not the ways you'd want your mother described to you, is it? How is, how's your mum? She's decent. She's pious. She's hardworking. She is not filled with love. But she didn't play favorites and loved all of her children equally, and Kroll saw this as a form of rejection. In order to escape the constant bullying that he suffered both at home and at school, Kroll spent all of his free time wandering the open fields and forests around his home. He didn't make any friends, and he never learned to socialize properly. In 1944, two of Kroll's older brothers and his father were drafted into the army and would later be prisoners of war. With an invasion by the Red Army looming, Mrs. Kroll took her remaining children and fled, fled to Ditzedorf, where they lived with Kroll's grandparents for a while. Once the war ended, however, Ditzedorf and Kroll's hometown of Hindenburg were no longer part of Germany. They were now in Poland, and in 1947, the Kroll family eventually moved to Oistdorf in Marsburg, West Germany. There, the family of nine lived in a two-room flat, and the 14-year-old Kroll managed to escape the cramped living conditions when he found work as an unskilled laborer on various farms in the area. Yeah, my desire... Can you imagine, like, my desire to leave home was like, I, I wanted to leave and stuff, but it was also like, you know, quite nice. Had my own bedroom, plenty of space, like, no worries. But if I was living, like, sleeping in the kitchen with a, of a, of a two-bedroom apartment with, like, 19 other people, I'd be like, let's get a job, let's not go to university, let's just get a job and afford my own place as immediately as possible, please. And so the cycle of poverty continues. His duties were simple. Milk the cows, muck out the stalls and the pigsties, and help with odd jobs around the farm. At the end of every week, he'd take home his 50 marks and hand it over to his parents, who would buy him clothes and food. He didn't enjoy farm work, and he wasn't good at it. And when a farmer caught Kroll topping up the buckets of milk with water, he was chased off the farm and wasn't allowed back. When Kroll was 16, his sexuality awoke. He still had zero social skills and no idea how to articulate his needs, so when he finally built up the courage to approach a girl, he simply sat down next to her and wordlessly placed his hand on her thigh. Uh, okay. okay! 
The girl, understandably, shoved his hand away and ran off and Kroll didn't understand what he'd done wrong, assuming that she just found him to be ugly and unattractive. <laughs> Dude, like so. <laughs> how do you not learn this? It's like, and why would you do that if you haven't learned it? Just learn it. There were movies. Since his approach didn't work, Kroll needed another way to relieve his pent-up sexual needs. Uh-oh. He stood by when the vet inseminated, uh-oh, some of the cows on the fur, uh-oh, and he figured out that if the vet could stick his hands up a cow's backside, why couldn't he shove her there? Oh, God, why? Kroll would later explain that he preferred the cows to pigs since they didn't run away squealing when he did his thing, and for a while it kept him satisfied. Oh, my lordy lord. But it wasn't until he watched a pig being slaughtered that Joe... That, that, oh, for God's sake. What was his name? How do you say his name? <laughs> Scrolling back. Yuakim. 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 That Yuakim Kroll experienced his first funny feelings. Look, I'm just going to call him Kroll from now on, okay? Because that's easier for me. And he found that the sight of the pigs being butchered sexually, oh my god, no! Excited him, resulting in incorporating him into his sexual fantasies whenever he enjoyed a solo romp in the hay. Bro. Kroll's family moved to the city of Bottrop in the Ruhr region in 1952, and Kroll followed a year later, finding work at a mine. By the time he was 21, Kroll's only knowledge of girls came from the porn magazine that the other men he worked with passed on to him, and he still had no idea how to talk to women. Oh, God, he used porn, bro. Come on now. Then Kroll managed to ask a girl on a date. Right? It's better than putting your hand on just a, hello there, hand on fly. It's like, no, Kroll, what are you doing? He's probably thinking like, You'd look good with your throat slit. Kroll, you psycho. Like, he's broken. He's already broken. Rita worked at a local bar, and Kroll would go there after work, buy a glass of apple juice, and sit in the corner and stare at Rita all night. Uh, Rita found... <laughs> Rita's like, oh, I got a guy with that guy. The guy who just sits in the corner by himself and stares at me. That charmer. Next thing we're going to be doing, he's going to come over and put his hands on my thigh, and then we're married. I'm desperate. She noticed and started making a point of talking to Kroll, but he was so flustered that he wasn't able to string a sentence together. One night, he drank a few beers and built up the courage to ask Rita to go out with him. She agreed, and the next night, the two went out to watch a movie together. Rita had more experience with men and reportedly was the one to make the first move, but Kroll had no idea how to react, and he allowed her to take the lead. A week into dating Rita, Kroll would have his first sexual experience with a woman. However, he claims that he'd been overexcited, and it ended prematurely, and the Rita had told him, that was a bit quick. <laughs> Ah, his performance didn't get any better, and after the third attempt, Rita kicked him out, telling him that he was a pulley and a louche, a loser, a wimp, and a dweeb, but in German it sounds so much more insulting, which was understandably a major blow to his already non-existent self-esteem. Uh-oh. Then, on the 21st of January 1955, Kroll's mother died, and his world began to spiral. His father kicked him out of the house, he lost his job, and the few sex workers he'd come across had shown no interest in him, bro. If the sex workers aren't, it's like, I'm paying you. And there's like, no, Joe Chim. No. And just like so many other insecure, unattractive young men who start blaming women for their lack of social skills. Wow, that's a whole new thing, isn't it? Like, I mean, not a new thing, obviously. But this is like, you, you, you see this. Like, there are like genuine people out there who are like, yeah, it's the women's fault that I can't get laid. It's like these, these like incels. It's like, it's not it. It's not. It's not. It's your fault. Get yourself together. Come on, it's not that hard. I mean, it is hard. That's fine. It's hard. Like, you've got to make an effort, is what I'm trying to say. Kroll decided that if they weren't going to give him what he wanted, he would take it by force if necessary, which is worse than all these guys on YouTube being like, it's women's fault that I'm an incel. And it's like, okay, but this is worse. But it's all like a, 
it, I feel like that's a gateway to some unpleasant stuff. It's more unpleasant than that is already, if you know what I mean. Ermgard Strachel. On the morning of the 6th of February 1955, Kroll got on a train and travelled towards Munster, a town that he was already familiar with because he'd worked there before. He got off halfway and started wandering along empty farm roads outside of Ludinghausen, looking for his first victim. Around 11am that morning, 19-year-old Im Ermgard Stirl was hitchhiking towards Munster when she crossed paths with the 20-year-old Kroll. He turned around and started following her, but when she continued to ignore him, he called out to her, and she stopped and turned around facing him. He walked up to her and outright asked her if she'd like to have sex with him, but she laughed him off and walked away. I just had a weird experience on the street. Like, I was just walking, like this happened like half an hour ago. I was just walking to get my lunch. I was just walking along, just me, just a nice sunny day out there. And a dude comes around the corner, looks at me, stops in his tracks, and says, Hi! And then... I'm like, I don't say anything because I'm like, I just kind of look to the side of me. Like, is he talking to someone else? And then he just wanders off. And I'm like, what just happens? Was that guy insane? Was he a fan? Like, because I'd be like, he's insane. But he spoke to me in English. And I live in Prague. Most, you know, it's Czech. There's no reason he would have addressed me in English. And so that was a weird. And he was in my demo of like um, 18 to 35 year old dude. And it's always, you know, that's I know that's my demo. But I don't know. It was weird. It's a weird experience. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for that tangent, Simon. Everybody cares. If you were that person, I could because I completely ignored him because I was like, what, what's going on? I assume it's one of those things where you don't want to say hi because 900 times out of a thousand. No, that's way too little. 999 times out of a thousand, you'll turn around and obviously he'll be talking to his mate behind you and you've made yourself sound look like a right cock by going like, hi, hi. So if you are that person and you happen to be watching and you are by some chance a fan, I apologize. I didn't know what to do. I was caught in the headlines and I didn't want to embarrass myself. But here is a belated hi. It was nice to meet you. Brilliant. You saw me very close to my office. <laughs> Angered by her rejection of him, bruh, that's not a rejection, that's just her being like... <laughs> Kroll hurried up behind her and grabbed her from behind, putting her into a chokehold. He dragged her into the nearby woods and ended up stabbing her to death when she continued to resist him. Her body would be found by a farmer two days later, and within an hour, the area was crawling with police from the first criminal investigation department in Munster. Ermgard was covered in defensive cuts and stab wounds. Her clothes hinted that she might have been assaulted, and her belongings were strewn around her body. There was also a pile of relatively fresh human feces found nearby, which did not belong to her. Well, that sounds like a DNA feast. Um... Although this was back in the day, wasn't it? The Munster Institute for Forensic Medicine would later find traces of semen on her underwear and skirt, and her autopsy revealed that she'd been three to four months pregnant at the time of her death. Oh, I just went from making a joke to this, and it's just horrible. They concluded that all the evidence indicated that it had been a sexual attack, and that Ermgard, Jesus, Jesus, Ermgard wasn't probably, probably hadn't known her attacker. The police investigation found that Ermgard had been living in foster care until December 1954 and that she'd regularly worked as a sex worker and that she'd been traveling between Oldenburg, Delmenhorst, Bremen, Hamburg, and Bremerhaven in the month before her death. She had a little black book listing all the names of her regular clients and they were all questioned to establish alibis and possible motives. The last person to see her alive was a delivery truck driver who would often give her a lift and he told the police that she'd told him that she was on her way to visit an aunt in Munster. Two weeks later, a possible lead came in when a credible witness told the police that they'd seen Ermgard in the company of a man just hours before she'd been killed. According to the witness, the man was under 40 years old, 1.65 to 1.7 meters tall, slim, dressed in a brownish suit, and he had a hat on. 
Police had the witness look at photographs of known sex offenders in the area, as well as all of Ermgard's known clients who came up with nothing. Blood type tests were also done on the semen found at the scene, but the results came back inconclusive. In summary, they had nothing to go on, and the murder of Imgard Strau became a cold case. Clara Tesma At 7.20am on the morning of the 17th of June 1959, four boys came across the 24-year-old Clara Frieda Tesma's body. She had been murdered during the night and was left in a field outside of Rheinhausen. There were signs that she might have been assaulted, but the cause of death was found to have been strangulation. During her autopsy, the medical examiner found that she'd been hit over the head with a blunt object before her attacker dragged her into the field. She was then strangled, and at some point she had been violated as well. A blood type test was done on the sperm that had been found at the scene, and a medical examiner reported that the killer had type A blood. The Doisburg police went to interview Clara's employer and work colleagues and found out that Clara was originally from Soviet-occupied Eastern Germany. She'd been working as a waitress in Doisburg and shared an apartment with a colleague. She was friendly and outgoing and was known to frequent dance clubs after work. She was last seen chatting to a man at a bar called Son. She left with him at around 1am and it was estimated that she died an hour later. Witnesses at the bar said the man had referred to himself as Heinrich sounded like he came from Berlin, and was described as being about 28 years old, 1.75 meters tall, slim, broad shoulders, thick dark blonde hair, narrow face, wearing a gold signet ring with a black plate on the right ring finger. Her description was issued to the media, and just nine days after Clara had been murdered, a sex worker, known only as Crystal, walked into the Rheinhaus and police department and claimed that she recognized the killer. His name was Heinrich Ott, and she'd met him at a bar just two months earlier. She only knew his name because she'd seen his ID when he was paying for their drinks. Okay, so it's not him, right? To quote her, I liked him, and he looked quite respectable. At the end of the night, he asked me to spend the night with him. I agreed, because I had nowhere else to stay. We then took a cab to the Rheinufer Park and got off there. He told me that he lived nearby, but he didn't tell me the address. After we got out and the cab was gone, he hit me with his fist on the back of my head. Heinrich went on to assault Crystal and strangled her in the process, causing her to pass out. Crystal admitted that she hadn't reported the attack to the police because she believed that they wouldn't have believed her anyway. She was a known sex worker, after all. The similarities in the attack on Crystal and the attack on Carla turned Heinrich into suspect number one, and the police quickly managed to track him down. He was taken in for questioning on the 28th of June, and he admitted that he'd danced with Clara on the night that she'd been killed. To quote, It's true, I danced with her a couple of times, and we also talked for quite some time. We also kissed later, fondled a bit, but nothing else happened. When they left the bar at 1am, Heinrich claims that he got onto his motorbike and drove to his aunt's house in Rheinberg, where he'd been living since his divorce. Unfortunately, his aunt couldn't confirm this, since she hadn't seen him over, in over a month. His ex-wife also told detectives that it's possible he killed Clara, claiming that he's a violent guy. I wouldn't put, any, put anything past him. Holy sh**. That's not a character reference, is it? <laughs> when your ex-wife is saying, like, I mean, I'm sure ex-wives generally don't have brilliant things to say about their former husbands, but like, oh no, he could murder someone. He could definitely murder someone. It's probably not like what you want to be seeing. Heinrich's innocence was brought into question even further when forensics confirmed that Heinrich Ott had type A blood, and when he was confronted by the detectives who argued that he'd murdered Clara, Heinrich, ins- Heinrich insisted that, I hardly knew her, why should I have killed her? <laughs> it's like, no, 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 I need a reason. I need a reason to kill somebody, but I would. These days, DNA evidence would have been able to exonerate Heinrich, but DNA wouldn't form a part of police investigations until the 1980s. Because he'd been unable to prove his innocence, Heinrich Ott was arrested for the murder and assault of Clara Tesma and was sent to prison. He would spend the next nine months in prison before the court rules that there was insufficient evidence to prove his guilt. By that time, he'd lost 15 kilograms, suffered from depression, and had lost his job, resulting in him leaving Germany altogether. Meanwhile, Clara's killer was living in a single men's workers' hostel five kilometers from the crime scene and was already planning his next attack. 
He'd heard of America's Ed Gein and wondered what human flesh tasted like. So the next time he went hunting, Kroll took a knife with him. Manuela Knod. On the 29th of July, 1959, German newspapers reported on the disappearance of 16-year-old Manuela Knod, who'd already been missing for three days. She'd gone for a swim at Lake Baldeny in Essen and was last seen at 6.15pm that evening. The police interviewed her family to get a better idea of what might have happened to her, and her parents, brother, and classmates all claimed that Manuela had been a considerate and fun-loving person. She was described as being an excellent student. She loved horses and belonged to a local sports club where she played handball, a popular sport in Europe that's played similarly to soccer or football, but the ball is thrown instead of kicked. Yeah, I feel like I've played this. I think we played this at school a little bit. Manuela had recently broken up with her boyfriends, but had hinted to some of her friends that she was seeing someone else. But of course, Manuela hadn't just gone missing. Manuela had been walking through a city park in Essen when she was hit over the head, placed in a chokehold, and was dragged off the footpath and into the cover of the trees. There, a killer gagged her before he started his assault, ending with him strangling her with a scarf. This time, however, the killer cut pieces of flesh from her buttocks and thighs before he left her there, hidden by the underbrush. Her badly decomposed body was found just over a week later. Good lord. Who's like, oh yeah, I saw what Ed Gein was up to and loved it. Uh, what, what inspiration. Ed Gein and eating the flesh. So inspiring. I must do the same. Psycho. This time, the local newspapers published touching tributes to the murdered teenager and asked the public to come forward if they had any new information that would help the Essen police track down her killer. Within a few days, multiple leads came in, but the most promising was a report made by a 22-year-old student who told the police that she might have seen something the day Manuela went missing. To quote her, At around 6.30pm that night, I ran that way. That's my route. That's where I run almost every day. Nearby, where the girl was found, I saw a young man. He suddenly came out of the bushes and ran away. Strange. I thought to myself, kind of strange. The witness told the police that the man she'd seen was, again quoting, 20 to 22 years old, about 1.72 meters tall, slim, well-groomed appearance, dark blonde hair, slightly wavy and combed back, fresh face, high forehead. The man wore a beige gray suit and a striking yellow shirt. Oh my lord, that's impressive. If I saw someone, I'd just be like, he was a man. <laughs> what was he wearing? Clothes. <laughs> what color was his hair? Hair-like. <laughs> Within a week, Essen police had 16 suspects, including Manuela's ex-boyfriends, but all of them had alibis for the night of her murder. Months passed without any new leads, but just after midnight, on the 13th of February 1960, a man who matched the suspect's profile walked into the Essen-Borbeck police station and told the officer on duty that he was responsible for the murder of Manuela Knott. He told the police that his name was Conrad Meckler and that he'd met Manuela at Lake Baldeny. He claimed that the two of them had spent the day together and gotten into an argument after he confessed that he was still married. He told the police that Manuela had tried to storm away during their fight, but that he'd grabbed a hold of Manuela's scarf and accidentally strangled her. But he didn't mention the fact that she'd been hit over the head. He didn't know that she'd been gagged and had no idea that the killer had cut pieces of flesh from her body. Why is he just going in and making a false confession? People are crazy. And did I just call that a confession? He wasn't the killer, but he signed the confession. And when the witness was brought in to identify him, she selected him out of a lineup of eight men. Oh my god, dude, you're in big trouble. Conrad Meckler was arrested for the murder of Manuela Ignat, but just three weeks later, he started insisting that it had nothing to do with Manuela's murder. To quote him, I was totally out of it. My wife had a lover and was even expecting a child from the guy. She wanted a divorce. I wasn't making any progress in my job as a salesperson either. I had high debts. I just didn't see any way out. And then I had the idea of going to jail. What? <laughs> Is you know what would be better? Prison. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go to prison for murder. That sounds like a reversible decision. 
Conrad admitted that he'd read about Manuela's murder in the paper and thought that if he went to jail, he'd at least have a roof over his head and some time to get his mind straight. Bro, so like, do something for like, I don't know, theft, something mild, not murder. Jesus. The public prosecutor didn't accept this new explanation, however, and on the 3rd of September 1960, he was officially charged with murder. During his trial, the jury heard that the defendant had strangled the girl to unconsciousness, then gagged her and left her helpless in the woods. But the court found that he wasn't guilty of murder, but manslaughter, and that it caused Manuela to suffer dangerous bodily injury, resulting in death. Um, what? He cut strips of her flesh away. And that's not murder. That's like, oh yeah, it's bodily injury, and you did... What? That is murder, Germany! What the fuck? On the 1st of March 1961, he was sentenced to spend eight years in prison and told that if he was indeed innocent, it was up to him to prove it. Um, yeah, well, he's, uh, normally he's like, obviously innocent until proven guilty, but he's been proven guilty, so now he's got to reverse that. Petra Gies. On the 26th of April 1962, Petra Gies was 13 years old. According to her mother, she was a typical teenager. She was a hard-working child and always helped around the house. There were never any problems with her. Only once I had to ground her, she hadn't come home that night and she'd been hanging out with a boy. Petra was hitchhiking next to a quiet country road when a strange man approached her at around 12 o'clock that sunny Tuesday morning. The man had approached the teenager and asked her whether she was interested in having sex with him. And she told him no and hurried away. 13. Dude, what the f***? She didn't hear him come up behind her. She didn't have the opportunity to put up a fight. By the time she woke up and realized that something was wrong, her attacker was already strangling her with her own neckerchief. Her body was found an hour later, and because there weren't any obvious signs of a struggle, the police thought that her body had been dumped there and that she'd likely been killed inside of a car. Witnesses confirmed their suspicions when they told the police that they'd seen Petra hitchhiking along the road just an hour before her suspected time of death. During her autopsy, a pathologist noted that she'd suffered some minor cuts and bruising during the attack, but that was about it. They did find some semen on her clothing, though, and blood type testing showed that her attack had type A blood. However, they also found traces of saliva on her neckerchief that belonged to someone with type O blood, suggesting there might have been two attackers. Yeah, but didn't the original guy have type B blood? Numerous witnesses came forward and told the police that they'd seen a turquoise green go-go-mobile, and there's a link for me. I guess this is going to take me to a picture of a Gogomobile. Okay, it looks like an old German car. It's uh, rather ugly. <laughs> Driving down that section of the road at around 12.45pm, the motorist who'd last seen Petra confirmed this when he told the police to quote, There was a Gogomobile turquoise green. He drove on the B8 in the direction of Vessel, put on the right turn signal, and drove exactly to the place where the girl was waiting. However, I could not see whether the girl got into the car. The newspapers reported that the person responsible for killing Petra drove a turquoise green gogomobile, and soon car calls came in pointing to one man in particular, the 52-year-old Vincenz Kuhn. He was brought in for questioning and admitted that yes, he drove a gogomobile, and yes, he lived in the area, but he claimed that he hadn't been anywhere near the section of road that day when Petra was killed. He gave the police a list of names of people who could confirm his whereabouts that morning, but none of them could account for where he'd been between 10am and 1pm that day. And on the 5th of May 1962, Dinslaken District Court issued an arrest warrant for Vincennes on suspicion of murder to the detriment of Petra Geese. But there wasn't enough evidence against him to prove his guilt, so on the 18th of June 1962, the public prosecutor's office announced Vincennes was free to go. But in his book, Anatomy of a Serial Killer, criminologist Stephen Harbott theorizes that there was another reason behind the prosecutor's decision to let Vincennes go. Two more girls matching Petra's description had gone missing while Vincennes Cohen was in prison, and there was a possibility that they were now dealing with a serial killer. Monica Taffel 
Twelve-year-old Monica Taffel was the eldest of three sisters, and she lived in a small town called Walsham, which is now a district of Doisburg. One night, their parents sat them down and showed them a newspaper article about the murder of 13-year-old Petra, telling their daughters to never walk anywhere alone and to, quote, Don't let strange men approach you. If someone wants something, run away immediately. Do not accept sweets. Never go with anyone. Excellent parenting. To sit them down and make them aware of this. Well done. On the morning of the 4th of June, 1962, Monica got ready for school and left the house at 7.30am. Her route took her down the busy Dr. Hans Barkler Street, and it was just 1.7 kilometers long. But when she didn't come home after school... Her worried mother called the school to ask whether Monica was on her way home yet. They told Mrs. Taffel that Monica had to, hadn't been in school that day, and that her parent and then her parents started ma- phoning their friends and acquaintances to find out whether anyone knew where she was. Wait, so they were just telling her not to go anywhere alone, and then they're like, "Yeah, off you go to school alone." What? Monica Taffel was reported missing at 6 p.m. that evening, and for the next week, the entire area surrounding her route to school was thoroughly searched by the police. But on the 12th of June, a five-year-old girl named Manuela, was abducted in broad daylight in New Stusseldorf after an unknown man had promised to take her to the fair and drove off with her, sitting in front of him on his motorcycle. Now the police were looking for two missing girls. The police had a press conference and, the pub- and told the public that the man who'd abducted Manuela, quote, is 30 to 35 years old. His height, his exact height is unknown. He is slim and has a pale, sunken face. He was dressed in medium brown, gabardine-like pants and a frock coat of similar fabric, but appearing lighter in color, a tan hat and black shoes. He was wearing a medium to dark blue shirt, possibly greenish in appearance. Reports came in the witnesses had seen a man on a motorcycle attempting to kidnap another child just two days before Monica had gone missing, and now the police were convinced that the two disappearances had to be linked. Manuela's body was discovered in a river on the 15th of June 1962, and her autopsy revealed that she had been strangled. Monica's body was found on the 18th of June, just three hours before Vincenz Kuhn was officially ruled out as a suspect. She'd also been strangled, but her body had been too decomposed for them to find any other forensic evidence that could identify her killer. The police drew up a profile for the killer and concluded that he was a sick bastard who preyed on young children. <laughs> yes, since we can't use the P word. Yeah, that's another one of those words that YouTube doesn't want us to use, but um, what? Yeah, preyed on young children. You know, you know what we're talking about. He had a criminal record relating to past sexual offences and was likely familiar with the area. Then another five, five years old, five-year-old girl went missing in Essen. And her body was found in the Rhine River on the 21st of June 1962. She'd last been seen in the company of one of her father's work colleagues, and he was later arrested after he'd admitted to killing the little girl. Then a 13-year-old girl went missing on the 22nd of June 1962, and her body was recovered just hours later. She'd gotten on the back of a motorcycle belonging to a man she was apparently familiar with, and had been assaulted and strangled before her body was dumped in a wooded area. An Italian immigrant was arrested for her murder. Neither of the men could be linked to the murder of either Monica or Manuela. According to criminologist Stephen Harbort, 293 children have been reported as missing in North Rhine-Westphalia by the 30th of May that year, but only three of them would remain missing by the time of Monica and Manuela's murder. However, news reports of the recent murders caused public outrage, and the police and politicians alike were trying their best to placate the panic's public. The police started patrolling in the areas around schools and other public places more often. Parents started doing school runs instead of allowing their children to walk to school alone, and educational campaigns were launched to educate the children regarding stranger danger. Harman Schmitz and Marion Veen In 1965, Kroll went from stalking women and little girls in quiet roads to hiding in the bushes and pleasuring himself while he watched couples get in on in their cars. Wait, 
But it's normally the other way around, isn't it? He starts off as the weirdo in the bushes and then becomes a full-on horrible murderer. Um, and now he just seems to de-escalate to something that's just creepy. On the 22nd of August that year, Herman Schmitz and his girlfriend, Marion Veen, met up at the pub for dinner. At around 9pm that night, they drove her light blue Volkswagen Beetle to a secluded parking lot outside of a public swimming pool and started doing what young lovers do. At one point, Marion thought she'd noticed someone in the rear view mirror and told Herman, Honey, there's someone back there. Herman got out of the car, but he didn't see anyone. And as a precaution, the couple drove off. But Marion took a wrong turn at the intersection and ended up in a dead-end street. Marion turned the car around and drove back towards the intersection, keeping an eye out for whoever had approached their car. But then the car stalled. Oh my god, this is like a horror movie. And Marion struggled to get it started again. Herman offered to take over and got out of the passenger side of the car. Marion scooted over to the passenger side and Herman tried to start the car, but the engine only started. Then Marion screamed. Someone had approached the car and Herman got out to confront the stranger. He was an entire head taller than the slight older man, but when Herman approached him and asked him what he was doing, the man stabbed him in the chest. Marion was horrified, but Herman was shouting at her to drive away, so she slipped back into the driver's seat of the car and tried starting it again. The engine only started, and Herman was still wrestling with his attacker, so Marion punched down on the car horn. The blaring siren scared Herman's attacker off, and when the engine finally roared to life, Marion got out of the car and ran to Herman's side. The noise had attracted the attention of a passing couple, and once they saw what had happened, they rushed off to call an ambulance and the police. A crying Marion told the police that her attacker was about 35 years old, maybe 1.75 meters tall, slim, dark-haired, wearing what looked like a dark suit. Other witnesses would come forward and say that they'd seen a man running away from the scene of the crime holding a knife, and the description was altered to say that their suspect was, quote, 35 years old, 1.7 meters tall, full oval face with high cheekbones, and had dark hair and eyebrows. But it was too late to save Herman. He was pronounced dead at 10.38pm and would be Kroll's only male victim. Ursula Rowling Ursula Rowling's body was found by a city parks worker on the 15th of September 1965. Just like the others, she had been confronted by a slight, dark-haired and balding man with protruding ears. He asked her whether she wanted to have sex with him, and when she refused and walked away, he grabbed her from behind. Mate, it's like, why do you, why do you ask? It's obviously this isn't working for you. This is... So, so, can you imagine someone would be like, yeah, yeah, okay. Never happening. Never happening. He dragged her into the cover of the trees that lined the paved walk in Forsterbush Park, strangled and assaulted her, and then left her body sprawled on the rain-soaked ground. She didn't have any obvious defensive wounds, and her underwear had been torn, and traces of semen were found in her body. During their investigation, the police found out that Ursula had been on a date at 6.30pm that night. Her date was the 28-year-old Adolf Schnickel. She'd only known him for about two months at that point. Schnickel confirmed that they'd been on a date and told police that they'd met up at his favorite bar the night Ursula died. Oh my god, if I was Schnickel, you'd be like, holy sh**, get a lawyer, oh my god. Oh god, hopefully they don't think it's me. According to their waiter, they'd gotten into a heated argument shortly before arriving. Oh no, Adolf is like, oh sh**. And Ursula had left the restaurant at 9.30pm. According to her diary, she'd arranged another date for 9.30 and was running late. Okay. The police theorized that Schickel had followed Ursula and murdered her in a jealous rage because he'd found out that she was dating other men. They also found out that he was technically still married, even though he and his wife had been separated for some time at this point. He was unemployed, lived with his mother, had a criminal record, and was arrested in June 1965 for robbing a department store and was currently out on parole. Oh, Adolf, this is not looking good. For I know it's not you, Adolf. Here 
in the future, but this is not looking good for you. The police immediately pegged Schnickel as their most likely suspect and took him in for questioning. He told the police that, quote, Ursula told me that she had to go to a female colleague to get something. Shortly before we intended to leave the bar, it began to rain heavily. I suggested that I will get an umbrella from home for her. When I came back 10 minutes later, she was not there anymore. I haven't seen her since. I arrived home shortly after 10 p.m. But Schickel's mother didn't agree with his version of events. Oh no, telling the police that, quote, Adolf didn't fetch an umbrella. I would know that. He came home soaking wet that evening around 10 p.m. and didn't leave. To be fair to Schickel, he probably had fetched an umbrella without his mother noticing. But because she told the police that he hadn't been home between 9.30 and 10 p.m., he had no alibi. And the police arrested him on suspicion of the murder of Ursula Rowling. Yeah, dude, of course they would. You did it. I mean, in their mind, they're like, he did it. Look at this. It's slam dunk. But Schickel insisted that he was innocent, telling the police that, yes, we had a fight. I knew about the other guys. It really pissed me off. That's why I accused her of cheating. But then she swore to me that she would break up with the others, and I believed her. That's what happened. Of course, if they wanted to prosecute him, they needed evidence against him, so his body was inspected for any signs that Ursula had fought back. They found scratches on his neck! Oh, Adolf! And Shigel explained that Ursula had scratched him the last time they'd had sex. Forensic experts found grass stains on the clothes and shoes he'd worn that night and determined that the seeds and blackberry thorns that were stuck to the bottom of his shoes came from the same park where Ursula had been found. Adolf, you're so screwed! As far as they were concerned, this proved that he was guilty! But then a witness came forward and told the police that they'd seen Schickel wait outside of his house for some time on the night of Ursula's murder. You lucky bastard. That meant that he hadn't been in the park when she'd been killed on the 7th of October 1966. The case against him was dismissed, and Ursula's murder was labelled as unsolved. That is how innocent people end up in prison. Because, god damn, if not for that witness, he would be in prison. At least until they could test his DNA and the DNA that they found on her body many years later. And then it'd be like, I was just in prison for like 30 years for a crime that I didn't commit. God damn. Ilona Hark and Krista. Ilona Hark was only five years old when this bastard killed her. On the 22nd of December 1966, she'd been visiting her grandparents in Wuppertal Barman and was uh, walking home on her own when Kroll approached her. He told the trusting little girl that he had something to show her, and then he led her to a secluded spot where no one would be able to see him before he attacked. Her body was found in a river four days later, over 20 kilometers from her parents' house. She'd been assaulted and had been drowned. Without any leads, her murder case was marked as unsolved. Five years old. On the 21st of June, 1967, a ten-year-old girl, known only as Krista, survived an attack by Kroll. She left her home just before 3pm that day and headed to a nearby creek, carrying her pet turtle in a basket at her side. She sat and played with the turtle on the bank of the quiet stream for some time before she saw the strange man watching her. He looks like most of the coal mine workers who worked in the nearby Prosper mine. Old, dirty, tired, and he wore a mismatched suit. He came over to her and asked her why a beautiful little girl like her was playing on her own. She told him that she was waiting for a friend, and he told her that it found a bird's nest a little way upstream, and uh, would she like to come and see it? Krista had followed the strange man, leaving her turtle on the riverbank, and once they were out of sight of the line of houses built on the riverbank, the man told her to sit down next to him. She did, and then he pulled out a stack of photos and showed it to her. At first, she didn't know what she was seeing, but then she realized that it was pictures of naked men and women. Krista grew uncomfortable and told the man that she wanted to leave. She got up, but he pulled her back down to the ground, and when she started crying out, he grabbed her by the neck and strangled her. Krista was paralyzed with fear and passed out due to a lack of oxygen. Because she'd barely put up a fight before she passed out, the man no longer felt excited by their encounter. His 
funny feeling was gone, so he left her there and headed back home, disappointed with how his little adventure has ended. When Crystal woke up a little while later, the strange man was gone, and she was still next to the riverbank. She played dead for a few more minutes until she was certain that it left before she got up and hurried home. Smart kid. One of their neighbors heard her crying for her mother when she reached their street and came out to see what was wrong. And within an hour, Crystal was rushed to the hospital. Her eyes were bloodshot. She had bruises on her throat. It hurt to speak. And she would have nightmares for years to come. Yeah, oh my god, so much therapy will be necessary. Yet the brave little girl gave the police a description of the man who had attacked her, telling them that her attacker was over 40 years old, with a wrinkled face, balding forehead, crown of dark hair in the back, five feet tall, thin, narrow face, yellowish complexion, unshaven, sweaty, working-class hands, dark suit, pants not matching jacket, plaid shirt, black shoes. An article appeared in the local newspaper warning locals to keep an eye out for a man matching his description. But Kroll was already back in Duisburg, and it would be another two years before he attacked someone again. Maria Hatcombe. At around 2 a.m. on the 12th of July, 1969, Hanaldor Goles returned home after visiting some friends and found that her landlady wasn't home. Thinking it was odd that the 61-year-old Maria Hatcombe would be out today without telling her, Hanaldor went looking for her. When she couldn't find her, Hanaldor called the police. A patrol car arrived, and at first they came across Maria's glasses at the entrance to a forest path that led from their neighborhood into a nearby park. They found her underwear a few meters into the park, and then they found her body. She had been strangled and assaulted, and her body had been partially covered with branches and other foliage. The only other evidence that a murderer had left behind was a trouser button, a bag of cigarettes, a fingerprint, and his semen. According to the blood type test, there was a possibility that the suspect belonged to the blood group O. Two witnesses came forward and told the police that they'd heard a woman screaming at around 11.30pm that night. One of the witnesses was attending a party nearby and said that the loud music and shouts coming from the other partygoers had made it impossible to figure out where the screams had been coming from. Six men were interviewed in relation to Maria Hetkin's murder, but they all had alibis, and once again, the police sat to shelf the case and mark it as unsolved. Uteran When school was let out at 1.30pm on the 21st of May 1970, it was raining, so Mrs. Rahn suspected that it might take a while for her second eldest daughter, the 13-year-old Uta, to come home. When she still wasn't home by 3.30pm, Mrs. Rahn became worried and called the school, who confirmed that Uta had left the school at 1.30pm as usual. Concerned, Mrs. Rahn and the rest of the family looked for Yuta for two hours, retraced her route to and from the train station in Hosel numerous times, and then Mr. Rahn called the Rattigan police station at 6pm to report his daughter missing before he went looking for her as well. Mr. Rahn retraced Yuta's route again, but this time he took the family dogs with him. Just a short distance from their home, the family, Dashwund, started barking frantically and ran into the brush. Mr. Rahn followed the dog, and there he came across his daughter's body. At 8pm, investigators from the 1st Criminal Investigative Department of the Dusseldorf Police Station arrived on the scene and they determined that Yudoran had been strangled and possibly sexually assaulted. Forensic evidence would later explain that she hadn't been penetrated, but sperm was found on her clothing. A blood type test was done and it was determined that a killer had type AB blood. Is this blood type testing just completely wildly inaccurate? Because it seems like we've had A, B, A, B, O, right? But I'm assuming these are all victims of Kroll. But Yuta also had type A blood, so it would be difficult to tie a suspect to a murder based on blood type alone. For the next two weeks, police officers canvassed Yuta's route in the train station, showing her picture to passers-by, and asked him if they'd seen a man wearing dirty, wet clothes on, on, in or near the train station in the afternoon she'd died. But no one had. 
1,175 men were listed as possible subs, and six of them would later be questioned in relation to the assault and murder of Uttaran. Their clothes were confiscated and tested, and the Federal Criminal Police Office in Weisbaden reported that fibers similar to the ones from Uttar's clothing had been found on the clothes belonging to one of their suspects, the 22-year-old Peter Shea, who lived next door to the Rahn family. Even though he claimed that he didn't have any interest in Uttar and had no motive to kill her, the police reasoned that Peter knew the forest track like the back of his hand, could have known when Uttar would be making her way home in the afternoons, and because he knew her, she was more likely to have trusted him, allowing him to get close to her. When they looked into his past, they found that he had served time in prison for theft, and that the court had ruled that he was an abnormal, erratic, weak-minded personality with little willingness to make contact. He had been released from prison just three weeks before Yuta was murdered, and he couldn't provide the police with an alibi for that afternoon. The circumstantial evidence was considered to be sufficient enough to charge him with Yuta's murder, and Peter was formally arrested on the 9th of June 1970. For the next 18 months, he insisted that he was innocent. And on the 12th of November 1971, the Dusseldorf Regional Court ruled that the defendant could not be found guilty of the crime of which he was accused with enough certainty to be convicted. Well, good, because it's not him. Peter Shea was once again a free man and was compensated for the year and a half he'd spent in prison. <laughs> Jesus, the compensation would be bloody good. How much do they give you for spending a year and a half in prison? I'd really want a very, 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 very large amount of money. But in the eyes of his neighbors, he was still guilty of Yuta's death, and Peter emigrated to Holland just so that he could be able to find a job and start a family of his own. Marion Ketter Marion Ketter was Kroll's last victim, and hers is the hardest story to tell. She's the reason why Kroll is known as the Doisburg cannibal. So, well, gird your loins, people. Things are about to get dark. Oh my god, really? I thought we already had done this, where he carved the skin off the thigh the, the, the flesh off the thighs of like the second victim. Because he liked Ed Gein. Ed Gein was his hero. What he wouldn't I don't want it to get worse. In the 1970s, Kroll got kicked out of the workers' hostel he'd been living in and moved into the top-floor apartment at No. 11 Friesen Street in Doisburg. He had been having some trouble with his knees and had to have an operation in 1972, but since then, he hadn't been able to walk long distances anymore, and he drove everywhere on his little moped. His neighbors soon learned to think of him as Uncle Akeem and noted that he had a love for children. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's like he loves children, doesn't he? Sick fuck. He'd often give the neighborhood kids candy and invite them over to spend time at his apartment if their parents needed some peace and quiet. There he had an entire cupboard filled with toys, and he would watch with a smile as the little kids played with his collection of dolls. The block of flats he lived in shared a grassy, tree-filled courtyard and could be accessed from the street through an open archway, and the children who lived there often played in the courtyard under the watchful eyes of Kroll, who'd watch them from a window in his apartment. In June 1976, Doisburg was experiencing a particularly bad heat wave. The temperatures had been exceeding 30 degrees Celsius all week, and one of the residents had set up a little splash pool in a fenced-off area of the courtyard for the children to play in. At around 3 p.m. on the 3rd of June, four-year-old Marion Ketter was playing in and around the splash pool with her six-year-old brother Thomas and Jutta, another girl who lived in the surrounding flats. Jutta fell and injured herself and went back home. At around 3.45 p.m., Thomas decided that he had enough of the day, dried himself off, got dressed, and went home to watch some TV. Their mother, Petra Ketter, had made some iced tea for the children, and she asked Thomas where his little sister was. Thomas told his mother that she should be in shortly, but when 15 minutes passed and Marion still hadn't come home, Petra asked her husband, Hans Ketter, to go and fetch little Marion. Hans left the flat at around 4 p.m. and went around the block to the archway that led to the courtyard. The courtyard was empty, and the only sign that Marion had been there was the little blue dress that she'd taken off and hung over the fence when she went swimming. Her shoes lay on the ground next to it. And because it meant that she was only dressed in her underwear, he took it to mean that she hadn't gone far. Hans searched the courtyard, calling for Marion but she didn't respond. He then left the courtyard and asked their neighbors whether they'd seen the little four-year-old girl. They hadn't. 
And Hans had to return home and tell his wife that he couldn't find little Marion. Oh my god, I can't imagine being like my kids, almost four. I just can't imagine being in that position. Just like, what the fuck? And also, I wouldn't let my kid play by themselves at four in a random courtyard with other kids. At that age, you keep your eye on your kids. <sighs> by 5pm, the entire neighborhood was out searching for the little girl, and by 6pm, the cats called the police and reported their daughter missing. Detective Sergeant Bernd Yagers was one of the detectives who investigated Marion's murder, and he explains that when a four-year-old goes missing, the alarm bells go off everywhere. Of course, you use a lot of personnel to try and find this girl. The news that the four-year-old Marion Ketter was missing was broadcast to all the patrol cars in the area, and the search continued at 7 a.m. the next day. At 9.35 a.m., Franz Falinski, one of the residents who lived at number 11 Friesen Street, approached one of the police officers to report something suspicious. It's about the missing girl, Marion Ketter. I've been talking about it with my wife for a long time. We're not quite sure, but it is strange. Franz told the police officer that when he had gone to use the toilet that morning, he found that it was blocked. When Franz asked his upstairs neighbor what was causing the blockage, his neighbor casually told him that it was the guts from a rabbit had slaughtered the day before. Franz had to remove the toilet to unclog the pipes, and the guts spilled out. Franz placed it in a bucket, and he and his wife then ordered their neighbor to get rid of it and had watched as he threw the guts in the garbage bin. That was when a dark suspicion started to nag at the back of Franz's mind. Dude. I don't like where this is going. We can't imagine that he hurt her, and we don't want to blacken anyone's name, but maybe it does have something to do with the child. When the police officers opened the lid of the garbage bin and saw the mess that lay on top of the other garbage, they immediately recognized it for what it was. Small human organs. They then went to question the 43-year-old Kroll in his smelly apartment, and what they found there had them calling the station and asking for an investigative team to come to 11 Friesen Street immediately. According to D.S. Yagers, he was working for the 1st Criminal Investigation Department's Homicide Division at the time, and when we got there, our other colleagues were already on the scene, and we went inside the fat and experienced something terrible. They found the toys and candy he kept for the neighborhood kids. But in his closet, they also came across the sex dolls that he kept there, all of them dressed in women's clothing. Some of them had nooses tied around their necks, and Kroll would later explain that he used the dolls to practice strangling women. Overall, his cluttered apartment was tidy, but on his bed, the police found a bedsheet stained with blood and feces. In the refrigerator, they found... I don't want to read that. You can guess what they found. And... Yeah. Let's just quote the police. I was shocked, because I had a son who was not that much older. I had not been in the homicide division long, only for two years, and that was something we had to do more than just swallow. I had seen many things, but it was something completely new to me, that a human being was able to do such a thing. The Doisberg Cannibal Stephen Harbott's book, Anatomy of a Serial Killer, includes several transcripts of the police's interviews with Kroll, and he admitted that he planned on killing Marion the moment he'd seen her playing in the courtyard that afternoon. He describes how he'd walked up to her and, when she was leaving the courtyard, invited her over and then took her by the hand and led her to his flat. Because all the children knew him, she didn't put up a fight until much later, shortly before he killed her. After he'd cut up her body, he cleaned up his flat, flushed the organs down the toilet, and then went out to dinner with a work colleague of his before he left to work the night shift. He returned home at 6am that morning. At 9am, Mrs. Falensky had confronted him about the guts they'd removed from their toilet and threw them into the garbage bin shortly after the police arrived at his flat. And here he was. According to D.S. Yagas, Kroll never cared about what he did. He did not even ask what her name was. He did not care. His funny feelings were gone. The body stayed there. He got up, possibly cleaned himself up, and then the matter was done for him. He didn't brag about his crimes. In that regard, he was totally emotionless. 
In the case file, the detective chief inspector on the Ketter case made a note explaining that the interrogation team had been instructed not to show any reactions such as disgust, revulsion, and the like. Today I saw Kroll for the first time during the interrogation. He speaks softly and little, often monosyllabic monosyllabically. He must be encouraged to utter complete sentences. In detail, he is still insincere in the Ketter affair. He is unlikely to have told the full truth yet. In the real crime documentary, Joachim Kroll, the German boogeyman, D.S. Jagers explained that they suspected that it wasn't the first time that Kroll had done something like this. He was too well-practiced, too smooth. We thought that if someone does something like this, other things or fantasies must have played a part. But Kroll only spoke the bare minimum, and they had to try and win his trust in order to get him to expand on his crime. So Detective Sergeant Jaegers sat down with Kroll and started having simple conversations with him, focusing on Kroll's hobbies and interests outside of murder. His neighbors had told the police that he often worked on his moped and repaired his own television and other electronics, so D.S. Jaegers insinuated that they shared a few interests. And slowly but surely, Kroll opened up and started talking about himself. The two sat and ate cake, drank bottles of coke, and chatted like old friends. And then Kroll started elaborating on the events surrounding Marion's murder and told D.S. Yargis that Marion wasn't his first victim, there'd been more, and he couldn't remember all of them. Didn't even know their names. Several investigative teams were ordered to go through all of the crime files for unsolved murders in the North Rhine-Westphalia for, in North Rhine-Westphalia for the last 20 years and try and determine whether Kroll could have been involved in any of them. They'd then drawn up lists of questions that D.S. Yargis had to ask Kroll in order to determine whether he had committed the murders in question. Questions like what the weather was like, what his victims were wearing, where he'd killed them, and how he'd left the bodies. Out of 300 unsolved murder cases, Kroll was suspected of being involved in at least 50 of them. Then, D.S. Yargis and the investigative team started taking Kroll to the crime scenes to see if he could tell them what had happened there. We as interrogators had no files, nothing at all. We drove behind the investigative team, and they stopped somewhere, and Joachim got out and asked, Joachim, have you been here before? And if he recognized something, then he'd say, yes, I've been here before. He then looked at it all and went with us into the forest, depending on what crime scene it was. He could then describe how it looked at the time. He did not know where he was, but he had just this photographic memory. Of his crime scenes. At each of his crime scenes, Kroll would act out the murder while a police officer acted the part of the victim. The police took photos of these reenactments and it would later be used to link Kroll to his crimes. We could only use what Kroll told us during the reenactment during the interrogations, and we would ask a few questions about whether or not anything more had occurred, or we asked, Joaquim, oh, what did you do then? What happened then? Questions like that. His answers convinced us that he is not inventing this stuff and that he really wants to get it off his chest. They did this for three months before Kroll's defense lawyer caught on and told them that Kroll would no longer be joining them at these crime scenes. <laughs> Why is your lawyer being this whole time? You just admit to crimes. But the damage was done. Kroll had confessed to at least 14 murders. Four of those cases had already been considered as closed and someone else had been arrested for the crime. In the end, they were only able to charge him with eight murders and one attempted murder, which meant that he could possibly spend the rest of his life in prison. Good. Where he belongs. He ate people. He ate children. He murdered and sexually assaulted people. He needs to go to prison forever because I'm assuming there's no death penalty, unfortunately, in this case. Kroll's trial was scheduled to begin in October 1979, more than three years after he'd murdered Marion Ketter. During the course of the trial, 250 witnesses would be called to testify and 13 experts would deliver their opinions regarding Kroll's mental state and whether he should be held accountable for the eight murders that had been charged with. The trial covered Kroll's upbringing, his education, and the psychological assessments that had been made of him. On the days when his crimes were discussed, the public were banned from the courtroom and in respect for the victim's family. Families, the newspapers didn't print the horrific details that came out during the trial. 
Kroll's mental capabilities were discussed in great detail during the trial, and the psychiatrists who evaluated him told Kroll that he had an IQ of just 78, which, according to the Stanford Binet Intelligence Scale, means that he was borderline impaired or delayed. It was suggested that Kroll hadn't realized the severity of the charges against him, and had only confessed to his other crimes in an effort to please or impress his new friends in the police. Kroll had also allegedly not realized that by confessing to not only Marion's murder, but the others as well, that had been digging a hole for himself. According to Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, in terms of what Kroll expressed regarding his punishment, he thought that he would just go to hospital and his funny feelings would be cured, and then he'd be able to go home. <laughs> ah, you're not going home, mate. You're going to prison forever, where you belong. But once his lawyers explained that he was facing a life sentence, Crawler changed his story numerous times, telling anyone who would listen that he hadn't murdered Marion. She simply showed up at his door already dead and had cut her up, up and had cut up her body out of panic. He then claimed that he never admitted to her murder and that his confessions had been forced out of him, and that the investigative team had tortured him for hours while he was detained at the Doisburg police station. His claims only served to delay the trial proceeding since the entire investigative team had to stand up in court and explain exactly how they had conducted their investigation. But then an expert was called in to testify, and he explained that based on the transcripts of Kroll's interviews, quote, the defendant had not given purely template-like descriptions of the events, but had reported from a linking of external events with situational emotional states or with biographical and sexual stages. Okay, which meant that it was clear that Kroll's testimonies were based on real experiences and hadn't been fabricated on the spot. However, he kept insisting that he'd only been responsible for the murder of Marion Ketter and played dumb whenever he was asked about the other murders. In the end, it came down to whether or not Kroll could be held criminally responsible for the murders or whether he should be admitted to a psychiatric hospital for treatment. According to Section 20 of Germany's Criminal Code, quote, a person who at the time of committing the act due to a pathological mental disorder, due to a profound disturbance of consciousness, or, or due to imbecility or another serious mental abnormality, is incapable of seeing the wrong of the act or of acting in accordance with this insight. No, he knows what he's doing is wrong. He's not that dumb. And thus, they wouldn't be found guilty of murder. But several experts told the court that despite the fact that Kroll was considered to be borderline mentally impaired, he knew exactly what he was doing when he committed each of the murders. He'd left his house intending to act on his funny feelings, had specifically targeted women and young girls who excited him, and had enough foresight to ensure that he wouldn't be seen or disturbed before he acted on his impulse and attacked his victims. He didn't suffer from any mental disorders, and he didn't have any abnormalities in his brain. By his own admission, it simply lacked the social skills to approach women in a social setting and develop meaningful relationships with them. He also explained that on the rare occasion that he did get the opportunity to engage in sexual relations with a woman, he left feeling dissatisfied and ashamed, which kept him from initiating relationships with other women. He claimed that if he'd only been able to have a sexual relationship with a woman, he'd have never committed his crimes, and he would have gone on to leave a, lead a happy and productive life. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all someone else's fault, isn't it, Kroll? Bull fucking sh. Anyway, at the end of Kroll's murder trial, the chief public prosecutor told the court that Kroll was a cold hearted killer who proceeded purposefully, deliberately hedging his bets and adapting to his surroundings. When he stalked and attacked his victims, he admitted that he'd been able to curb his need to kill on numerous occasions when he realized that he wouldn't be able to attack his victims undetected and managed to go months without killing. This proved that nothing kept him from resisting his deviant drive when summoning all his will. The chief public prosecutor concluded his closing argument by saying that society has a legal right to be protected from Kroll. He has brought boundless suffering to countless families and is irreparable. The need for just atonement and the protection of human life demands the maximum penalty. On the 8th of April 1982, Chairman Paul Shimon told the court that the defendant is guilty of eight counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. He is sentenced to life imprisonment. It must be emphasized once again that the defendant, through the almost inconceivable acts he has committed, has incurred the heaviest guilt 
for which he must atone. He is also dangerous to the highest degree because he consciously does not oppose his impulses to commit the crime in order to achieve the highest sexual pleasure and satisfaction. He must therefore, in the opinion of the chamber, never again be allowed to go free. Kroll spent the next nine years in Reichbach prison and suffered a heart attack on the 1st of July 1991, bringing an end to his miserable existence. Good, good, dies in prison. Fucking great. Happy he's dead. What a dick. Dismembered appendices. Number one. Germany's criminal code promises both victims and witnesses anonymity in order to protect their families from persecution, and as a result, most of the names in this script are pseudonyms. Oh, it's weird finding that afterwards, but there we go. Number two, at least three other cases accredited to Kroll, the murder and assault of the 12-year-old Erika Schuleter, the disappearance of the 12-year-old Barbara Bruder, and the murder and assault of the 10-year-old Karen Topfer. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough information regarding their murder cases, so I had to settle for mentioning them here. Number three, the press didn't have a lot of opportunities to take photos of Kroll, so during his trial, they offered him five-figure sums for the dubious honor of printing exclusive pictures of his face. Number four, Kroll's trial dragged on for two years and consisted of 151 days in court. According to Stephen Harbour, this was mostly because Kroll claimed to be unfit to attend court. He claimed that he had circulatory issues, toothaches, heart headaches, or had fallen ill and was too sick to attend, and the court would be dismissed. Because the trial dragged on for so long, at least five witnesses, including a psychiatrist, three expert witnesses, and the father of one of the victims, had passed away before they could testify against him in court. Number five, there aren't a lot of reliable English sources on Kroll, and Stephen Harbert's book, Anatomy of a Serial Killer, is only available in German. As such, I'd like to thank the following people who helped me translate the sections of the text when AI translators failed. Paul Rinkamp, Serenity, and Jonathan Fari. And yes, well, thank you all. Thank you, Jen, who edits this. Thank you, Emma, for writing it. That was a miserable episode about a man who ate a child. Um, I'm going to need to go wash my ears out with bleach. Ears? Eyes? I guess eyes, because I read it. Good lord. Thank you for being here. I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.